Ohio. I'm Wilson. No, 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 no. Okay. <laughs> no. Ohio Gazimus. <laughs> I'm Wilson Lai. <laughs> I'm Benjamin Yap. I'm Eli Sands. You're listening to Deep Cut. <laughs> like, none of that bullshit. Okay. <laughs> no jokes. <laughs> On Deep Cut, we compare a director's most popular film with a personal favorite chosen by one of us. We also discuss that director's life and career to bring in context that helps us view the movies as they may want us to. So on this episode, we are continuing our discussion on the Japanese auteur Juzo Itami. Uh, last week, we talked about his iconic, inspirational, infamous Tampoco. Hunger inducing. Delicious. Food. And today we are tangentially licked because we are talking about a movie which is also sort of about food. And it brings me so much joy to bring to the table today Itami's 1996 work, Supermarket Woman. And my reason for picking Supermarket Woman as a deep cut pick is I do believe that Tampopo stands on its own in Itami's filmography as the most popular film of his. And then all the other movies of his, at least in the international sphere, are sort of deep cuts. And I just wanted to pick the one that I think we all would have the most fun talking about. And I just wanted... (laughs) Well, I just wanted you guys to have a fun time watching a movie. And I think... I appreciate that. <laughs> Out of all the other Itami films that I've seen, Supermarket Woman was, I think, the strongest, like, cohesively as a, as a whole, um, with all the narrative and stylistic elements. I think it's the strongest of his other films, and I think it is a good indicator of... A lot of the other films in his filmography where he worked closely with Nobuko Miyamoto and his larger, the larger cast that he likes to work with, and I guess also a more straightforward narrative than Tempopo. So just a little bit of background on Supermarket Woman. Um, Supermarket Woman was released in 1996. It premiered at the Seattle Film Festival and later on opened in Japan. It was Itami's second last feature, his last feature being Woman in Witness Protection, (laughs) before his tragic death, which I said I would talk about in this episode. In 1997, on December 20th, Itami died after falling from the roof of his office building, and on his death, there was like a suicide note stating that he was falsely accused of an affair and apologized to his wife. Her photo was on his computer screen. And I think a few days after his death, a tabloid magazine released photos of him in his alleged affair. There has been a lot of debate as to whether or not he committed suicide or there was some 
sort of interference from Yakuza. Uh, definitely. Oh, definitely. <laughs> because... It feels like a definitely. It, it's, it feels like a definitely, especially considering a previous film that he made called Mimbo, the art of... The, the gentle art of Japanese extortion, which talks about this hotel in which they are they're they're trying to get the yakuza out. So the, the different the different strategies that they use, and um, I think the release of that movie struck a chord with the yakuza, and there was threatening going on and there was um physical harm done to itami i think they slashed his face so he has he had a very visible scar after the release of that movie and the subsequent movies that he made afterwards were not as didn't really tried not to like venture into that territory but i think the the one that he was making after Woman in Witness Protection, which is his last, the last feature that he made, was going to be a direct call out of the the Yakuza gang that attacked him. Uh, and these, these are all like alleged sources and alleged mm. things that happened. But um, I feel like from the information that I've read um, and also the films themselves, like I think... He was unafraid of, of trying to like critique larger systems and like larger forces. And I think it might have backfired. And the sad thing is, like, so much of the things that he made movies about, the things that he wanted to satirize, like, eventually became true. Like Women in Witness Protection is about like Nobuko Miyamoto plays a like this really fancy actress who is like who's sort of like a diva and she becomes the witness of a murder and then is placed under witness protection. And after oh. Itami's death, Miyamoto herself was placed in witness protection for like a, a lot of years. Yes. I read it was like 20 safety. years. Yeah. Whoa. Like 20 years. Crazy. Yeah. That is very scary to me as someone who <laughs> believes in, in this super uh, superstitious stuff. Um, yeah. It is a little <laughs> freaky. That art makes life. Art makes life. <laughs> the thing that feels sad about Itami's death to me is that it feels very antithetical to the way his movies go. Like thinking about Supermarket Woman, it's about a small band of upstanding co-workers who come together and form a community to stand against the larger corporate antagonistic force. And mm -hmm. to know that that's the opposite of what happened when Itami came up against the Yakuza is, is sad. I was going to draw another link to Supermarket Woman and maybe Tampopo, which is that it sort of makes sense because... From what I was reading, it sounds like Itami just gave no shits and just like said whatever he wanted. Yeah. He, was, he was not afraid of the Yakuza. And from what I could tell, it was because he was saying stuff like, oh yeah, they would never kill anyone because he was kind of saying that they were pretty much like lily-livered organized crime and they basically proved him wrong. But it kind of makes sense because you look at Supermarket Woman and Tampopo, he makes these characters that are extremely principled who stick to their guns speak up against people who seem much scarier and much more formidable than they are and yeah. he doesn't care and those are the heroes he he loves and yes. he i guess was living his truth which was yes. the truth in his movies as well mm -hmm. it's yes. it's sad but it, it 
it tracks, you know, it kind of tracks in terms of his work. Um, mm. It's sad because like, I was reading about how he started making movies really late. Like he was 50 when he made his first feature and he only made movies for like 10 to 15 years. He yeah. probably had so much more to come out with. And it's just kind I of feel a shame. like he was just hitting his stride. Like yeah. I think it is really a shame when directors are gone too early, when you feel like there was so much more that they were would have been able to to give to the world yeah but rest in peace juzo itami yeah Yeah. rest in peace yeah let's move on to supermarket woman (laughs) which is oh what a what a glorious glorious movie and i think just just an overall crowd pleaser supermarket woman stars juzo itami's wife and regular leading lady uh, Nobuko Miyamoto is a woman named Hanako. Hanako is a widower who bumps into an old childhood friend named Goro at the opening of a local supermarket called Discount Demon. Um, so Hanako knows a lot about supermarkets, and it turns out that Goro owns Honest Mart, a supermarket that is failing not only due to Discount Demon's opening, but also to bad management. Goro hires Hanako to help out with Honest Mart, and the film sees her trying to win the support of various factions like the Meat Guys, the Sashimi People, and the Produce People within Honest Mart to make changes within the store in order to make the store the best supermarket in Japan, which is a phrase that is debated in one of my favorite scenes in the movie. I think as a whole... The thing is a blast of like fun energy. You look at what Miyamoto is doing with the character. She is constantly in motion, always excited. Like when you talk about extra service, this is like next level kind of thing. Like even about the smallest thing, she's so excited to help and do good. And it's pretty much a kind of feel-good movie. There's very clear villains, there's very clear heroes, and it's very easy to root for those heroes. And it's just a very fun watch. Yeah, I think it's just a good time. It looks good. <laughs> it's funny. It's weird. <laughs> it's obsessed with supermarkets, and I kind of <laughs> dig that. <laughs> I like the part where she's introduced to the inner world of the supermarket, right? When she yeah. was first just a fan, and now she gets to see the inner mechanisms of how the market works the heart of the supermarket being the assembly room in the back right like that stuff is really fun and if tampopo is a film that plays on your love for food specifically ramen and also other kinds of japanese food supermarket woman has to do with the more taxing job of making you interested in supermarkets yeah. <laughs> as a baseline which is not a universal love for most people i would say yes. right but i think it does a good job of making you love the supermarket not yeah, just it's a good pro-capitalism movie yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's a really interesting point i want to get into Ooh, um, yep. lots to unpack there <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it does a really good job of making you love how it works as an entity and also the people that work at the supermarket and the different groups of people i like kind of listed down the different tribes almost in the supermarket mm-hmm. the you have the cashiers you have the meat side you have the fish side and then you have the produce side i guess yeah like that's kind of like the general and you have the cooked breakdown food, the cooked food yeah the like cooked the food cooks, side as well chefs. yeah and it really built a pretty big world within a very small world of the supermarket which is really cool and he does a great job of itami does a great job of of realizing that in obviously his heightened world. <laughs> yeah. He really stretches the 
the bounds of what you can show and what you can shoot and what stories you can build within like one supermarket because a lot of it just takes place in one supermarket or, or both of the supermarkets and like if you think about the the running time of the movie it's it's over two hours and um <laughs> i think not a lot of other directors can make just one location so interesting for that mm. amount of time and i think there's a lot of different strategies that he employs um a few being like like how he crowds the frame every time like with either with people or with mm. with produce and like production design and like constant like character slash camera movement eli what did you think i also really enjoyed it it was a really excellent choice for the deep cut pick because i was thinking about the ways in which it compares and contrasts with tom popo particularly with nabucco miyamoto's role and her character in both movies. And we I definitely want to dive into the differences and similarities between those two characters. Last episode, we talked about how the whole movie of Tampopo is a process sequence where she is going through the process of becoming a better ramen chef. And here, the whole movie is a process again. Mm-hmm. It sets a hazy goal of becoming the best supermarket in Japan. And then it specifies that goal, I think, really thoughtfully in that conversation that Wilson is describing. And it demonstrates what a good supermarket looks like. I think Itami is interested in virtue, by which I mean both moral virtue and the idea of virtue of when is something most essential to itself. When is ramen most essential? And what does that mean both in the product and in the act of creating ramen? And in the case of Supermarket Woman, what makes an essential, virtuous supermarket? And who are the people that make a virtuous supermarket? I think Atami really takes the concept very far and is very rigorous and thorough while also having so much fun. And then randomly, there's just like an incredible car chase at the end mad max freezer road <laughs> an even better chase within the supermarket i would argue i agree oh. yeah that's that's an incredible as a jump I, scare it scared me <laughs> i have some criticisms on a movie and i think the freezer chase sequence is one of them because it feels so out of the world of the film it feels very high budget <laughs> for no real reason except to do something crazy which i can get behind as well but in terms of what the movie is trying to say, it feels like the wrong climax for mm. the film. Yeah, actually, and... I agree. And I think it. I think I wanted like five more minutes at the end of the movie to see yeah. sort of how the New Year's sale goes. Mm-hmm. I think part of the point is that, you know, you don't see how it turns out because that doesn't matter. It's yeah. about the fight and... and the stance that they're taking. Yes. But I agree with you, Ben, that the climax itself feels a little bit... It could have been Not shifted quite. a little. Yeah, I think I don't think like it should have been a set about. piece. I don't think it should have been a set piece. I think it should have been. It could still be part of it, but I feel this is like you said, Eli, a film about the virtue of like, what is a virtuous supermarket, right? right? And so it's about the principle. It is not about who is going to be able to physically catch the bad guy. Yeah, right. right. It should be about fighting the principle, right, between these two supermarkets. And I think it was missing a little bit of that. Yeah, it is in the fabric of the film that discussion of the principle of what is a good supermarket, 
but the narrative doesn't go to a place of climax of that discussion. Right. Right. It kind of already makes its point from early on in the first act or whatever. Yes. And then you just kind of follow it all the way through. So I think my main criticism of the film is about the narrative shape of it, Mm -hmm. where it never really crunches into its central question. Right. Right. Yeah. What's a good supermarket? What does that mean? What does it mean to serve the people? It throws a lot of interesting questions into the mix, uh, which I also want to get into. But I think because Hanako has already such a strong idea, like I don't think there she that she is like that isn't question that she has in her mind. I think she already knows what constitutes a great supermarket, and it is about her trying to get all the different factions of the people working at the supermarket to to be on the same page and um, and that is like the main quest of the movie or the main her main goal of the movie and i guess the final chase sequence being the the meet people that she needs to to, <laughs> to get in line it, it is never really a question for her i think my criticism is quite a light criticism because if you kind of step back and look at supermarket woman as a narrative the big difference is that here there's only really one story, right? Whereas yes. Tampopo is made of vignettes and sketch, kind of little sketches. Yeah. But if you really look at Supermarket Woman, Supermarket Woman is also actually just made of little sketches. Yeah. Except they're yes, all in the same world. And if you look at it from that standpoint, it kind of operates in the same way as Tampopo from a narrative construction view of it. And so it is like Tampopo not necessarily trying to tell a single cohesive plot or story, mm. right? So in that sense, I kind of am able to forgive its looseness because there's a lot of looseness going on in terms of like certain scenes. Like for me, one of those is the problem of the supermarket carts, which I felt like was set up, but was not solved. <laughs> so like, that's kind of like what I'm talking about. The payoff is that long take where she she's running and she's gathering all the all, all the carts together. And, and there's like comedy in that. And then she goes to get the carts out of the guy's trunk and she just starts he has like a hundred right more and more shopping bags i guess and she's i like, get it can't take these home <laughs> fine take them all i get that it's funny on its own but i'm like i'm thinking from a very macro kind of view which is why i still say it's a light criticism right to kind of think right, of it right, as right. A, because in a the moment movie. it's it's still enjoyable yeah i think uh you're both right <laughs> because you can't keep doing that, Eli. Take a yeah, stand. I can. Watch me, Ben. <laughs> Take a stand. But but seriously, I think that by asking the question, "What is a virtuous supermarket?" Because Atami cares so much about teams and chosen families, being a good supermarket means being a good team. And also, in terms of what kind of narrative it is, I think there is a bit more causality across the different threads than in Tom Popo. Though, yes, there are sort of multiple balls juggling, and some of the scenes are one-offs, like the shopping cart scene. Nonetheless, I do still agree with what Ben's saying about the climax, because of the artisans that are working in the supermarket that that Hanako has to deal with, there are certain gradations. So the Produce Pro is the easiest to get onto Hanako's side. And then the 
Next most challenging guy is the fishmonger and then the butcher, who's just a complete antagonist. Mm -hmm. So I both see how he fits into his role in terms of types of obstacles for Hanako. And it is also, I mean, just on the surface, it's a climax that takes place outside of the supermarket itself. Mm, Right. And I think that alone makes it feel a little bit off center. And also the ways in which Hanako overcomes all the obstacles is through connecting to the pros. And in the climax, she, her agency is removed entirely and she's stuck in a freezer. Mm -hmm. I think one of the most touching scenes is when the fishmonger's fish tank of live fish is being removed and he has a fit of anger and starts disassembling it himself and scares his coworkers. From there, they're kind of, a number of jumping off points like this whole argument that there's no room for artisans in a capitalist environment (laughs) was a little bit uncomfortable for me (laughs) and then also we can talk about nobuko miyamoto's agency as hanako does she exist for goro does she exist for herself in Mm -hmm. tampopo do the people who are helping her learn exist for her sake Right. I'm very interested in how Itami is positioning his leading lady in both movies. Yes, yes. The Goro Hanako relationship is so interesting to me. Like, even from their first meeting in Discount Demon, the rival supermarket, where he's immediately already trying to come on to her. Um, <laughs> yeah. After, after, Very after, aggressively. <laughs> after like a really brief, but really sincere moment where they both acknowledge the, the death of each other's spouses in And I think that that is a thread that continues because like when she goes to visit his apartment, she pays respects to his Mm. to the shrine that he has for his late wife. And then as she's doing that, he's also trying to come on to her. So I think Itami's trying to work through these ideas of like moving on from a deceased spouse and also like old horny people. Um, (laughs) There's something sweet about old horny people. I think there (laughs) is as well. Eli and I were talking a little bit before we started recording, and I think Goro's forwardness was a little off-putting for for him. Eli, sorry, I'm not. I'm putting words in your mouth. <laughs> no, I agree. Specifically, Goro touching Hanako without her express permission. When that happened, I was like, oh man, I'm going to have to hold two truths in my head for this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I totally see where you're coming from, Eli. Like, it's, yeah. it's a little off-putting and like a little strange. I guess I let myself forgive it mainly because there is an easiness to their chemistry in terms of the characters that they have. Yes. They're supposed to know each other, not intimately, but well enough that they can kind of jive with each other. And Yeah, and from the get-go, it is established that the way that they know each other is that they are they were classmates in elementary school and i think it is really funny because a lot of their dynamic does seem like two elementary school kids like huh. sort of like teasing each other and <laughs> dancing dancing with each other <laughs> and i think when i see goro like coming on to Hanako in my head, like a teenage boy coming on to a teenage girl and the girl being like, no, like swatting his hand away like that. that That's how I was seeing it. But like it, it really it is 
it is very true that there's a lot of unwanted advances coming from Goro in this movie that can be very off-putting. That childishness in their relationship definitely seems like it's on purpose, but they are still older people. And I, it's both in the world and also made me feel a little weird. And I'm also thinking about how Hanako's character responds to Goro's advances. She sort of swats away his hand and calls him idiot and is a little playful and eventually agrees to attempt to sleep with him. <laughs> she can't stop laughing. <laughs> yeah. The thing that I would like an answer to that I don't know is how much of that response that Hanako has to Goro's advances was come up with by Itami or by Miyamoto. Because I think there's a difference between a male director writing the character to respond that way and a lead actress bringing that to her character. I sort of don't know. I think it makes a difference. I feel like I believe that Hanako is interested in Goro in a sense. I mean, she does say it herself, like why she doesn't actually want to sleep with him. But you can tell that there is some kind of chemistry there and she is interested in him to a certain extent. I think, at least for me, the movie does a good job of not really saying what Goro is doing is right. He's just doing it as kind of part of his character that he is horny and interested in her, but it doesn't frame it as a good thing. And the fact that you're aligned with Hanako the whole time, you're kind of also, like mentally, I was also swatting him in a way in a sense. And so I think at the very least, I can say that the film does not condone (laughs) what Goro is doing. It doesn't condemn it, but at least doesn't condone it. I think a lot about old anime I used to watch when I was a teenager. Mm. And it feels very reminiscent of that kind of male-female relationships in anime. Yes. And I don't know whether it's something that's cultural that... Not that they are okay with it, but it feels like one of those archetypes. I mean, a lot of anime is probably written and made by men as well. So I think it kind of plays in those similar archetypes of horny dudes. I like this point that you're with Hanako on those experiences and sort of looking down on Goro. And because she is the more active character through most of the movie, you just align with her more in general, even though you really enter the movie with Goro's perspective and his need of improving his supermarket. She becomes the more active character. And clearly she gets her own fulfillment from helping out in the supermarkets, not just serving Goro's needs. Until the ending when, when I think part of the purpose of the climax becomes putting Goro up onto Hanako's level. He saves her life, including through disrobing her and having their bodies together and putting her in a bath to warm her up from being in a freezer. These feel like choices that put Goro's agency up next to Hanako's and also validates his advances in a sense, even though it is to save her life. This is another level where the climax doesn't feel quite right to me. I think that's a fair point. That is I mean, a really I, fair I, point. I think it makes sense. I'm going to go back to anime again. Like, I'm not saying it's correct. I'm saying that it plays in that, those same places. Like, this is the shit you'll see in, like, yeah. male-targeted like teen anime mm. like this kind of sexual humor yeah. especially culturally it is yeah. i think it, it is sort of like a common thing and yeah. that's not to say that we are letting it go 
because we are talking about it. Yeah. Um, but I think that is an, like an explanation. And yeah, we can hold both things in mind. Yeah. I think this is a good launching off point into our favorite topic, gender. <laughs> yeah. Because there's a conversation to be had about the gender lines in this film. Yes. Right? Yeah. yeah. You see it in so many of the big group scenes where the men and women are split into groups. Mm-hmm. And they really fall into groups of men and women quite cleanly most of the time. And I'm thinking a lot about the scene where Hanako goes to ask the uh, Goro and as well as the rest of the so-called... It kind of looks like a board of directors kind of meeting mm-hmm. where the butcher guy is there, fish guy is there, the manager is there, the corrupt manager is there. And she comes in with a group of women and is trying to ask them to stop selling repackaged produce. Yeah. And that's a very clearly gendered scene. Yes. Where the women are talked about as part-timers who are also housewives. And then you have the disinterested men who are controlling the supermarket. Yeah. And I found it very interesting as a sort of indictment of the problems with most supermarkets being that, at least in the world of Itami's film, and I guess in a sense he's trying to say in the world of Japan, the people who control the supermarket are men, but the people who use our, yes. our customers of the supermarket are women, but the women are not in control of the thing that they are the so-called biggest stakeholders of because they're the customers. And I found that to be a really interesting cultural comment, I guess, mm-hmm. that is presented in a, in a show-don't-tell kind of way. Sharp observation. I'm thinking about how the women in that scene are standing as all the men are sitting. Mm, yeah. And I'm also now thinking back on the customers that we see in the movie. Almost all of them are, yes, women, are women, except yeah. for an older man who Hanako helps with his baskets. Mm. And then a middle-aged man who is out by his car and stealing baskets. <laughs> 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 when so, she starts taking them and just like fine take them and starts throwing like 10 out of his car incredible use of off-screen space to hide a joke yeah. and then reveal it that scene in the in the so-called boardroom is really interesting because it's really about how hanako is a character that's helping this group of women both the housewives as well as the the women working in the supermarket find their voice in shaping the supermarket for them And I think that's maybe one of the most powerful kind of elements of the film. You know, Mm -hmm. it is making a comment about gender. Uh, Maybe gender that's specific to Japan, but it it really works. And it's it's carried on through the film, right? Because for Hanako, one of her biggest wins is when she sees the part-timers finally shopping Mm. at the store that they work at and she that i think is like one of her biggest celebrations that she has to goro and she repeats it to him many times and he just he he doesn't share in her elation and she's just like you just don't get it like these are the customers that we need to be getting because they are housewives and they know best and this whole core idea of like you need to put the customer first always just think about think about their experience and the most common customer of the supermarket being the housewife because society and (laughs) (laughs) hey i go to the supermarket i just went there just now (laughs) and it's my yeah (laughs) 
<laughs> well, Ben, you have to be your own Hanako. You go talk to the I want whatever manager in the supermarket. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it is a statement about gender, but also a statement about like the like larger Japanese society and who who runs what, but who is on the receiving end of of these services and i guess uh, how how ineffective it is because i do i do think he is he's not just making this movie because he wants to make this movie i think th- there is a underbelly of a critique yeah. against these systems in place it feels like you know how we talk in tampopo about how some of the very short scenes are cultural comments in themselves really really concise yeah supermarket one feels like a really big version of that and I'm reminded now of the scenes where the the backroom deals are happening in that hostess bar or whatever, and you see how the women in those scenes are being presented and how they're yeah. in service of the men. And so you, there is definitely a larger commentary about how gender works in Japanese society, for sure. When you really put everything together, you kind of see what the film is trying to say. Yes. You know, it's not necessarily saying something specific, but it is putting all that in view. Right. right, and when you really think about it, and I think that's the thing that's so strong about these two films from Mitami that I've seen. Like he's so good at making a comment on the culture that he's presenting mm-hmm. in yes. a very, very almost subtle way. Even mm-hmm. in his Haydn universe, he is able to give you this message without just ramming it down your throat mm-hmm. and also having fun with it. I think this is a good point to ask a little bit about the differences between Hanako and Tampopo as characters. Mm, this is something that I wanted to talk about as well. I already raised the question of, does Hanako exist to help Goro? Does she get her own satisfaction from the market? You know, it is narratively convenient that she pops up in his life to help him out with the market when she does, but it's not a convenience that sort of solves the problem of the movie. It is an inciting incident. Right. And maybe that makes it more easily swallowable. And also Hanako clearly does find fulfillment and has most Definitely. of the agency of the movie. Definitely. In Tampopo, in a sense, she's reactive in that she's being taught how to make ramen. But her needs are getting met by improving yeah. her own shop. And she has to do all the work of learning how to cook ramen. So she does have agency in Tampopo as well. It's interesting how on flip sides of sort of who is doing the teaching in the movie, Nobuko Miyamoto's character still has agency in both movies and is guiding the ship in different ways. Yeah. I remember when I asked Wilson, is Supermarket Woman about Nobuko Miyamoto becoming the best Supermarket Woman ever? And then you laughed. And it's actually the reverse. Because in this one, she's the expert. Because she already is so fun. the best yeah. Supermarket Woman. It is so great to see her on the other side and not the timid, eager-to-learn character. And more like, I am calling the shots. I know what to do. And trust me and my strategy. And we will succeed. I think she is Hanako is snappier than Tempopo. She has sass. I I love that. And mm-hmm. I think like it, it just from that 
one of the very first scenes in the movie after they meet at Discount Demon, Goro brings Hanako, who doesn't know that this is Goro's store. He, he brings her to his store and he was just like, tell me about this store. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna fall. And in one, yeah, in one short scene, she's like, yeah, this is, this is a shit show. <laughs> but I think she has, she still has agency because he offers her a job that like is her her decision whether or not to to take it sort of flips the the trope on its head where it's like oh the male boss like doesn't trust the the woman who obviously knows a lot more than he does like her intuition and and fights back against her and that would be in and in like I, I guess a common like hollywood movie that would be a central point of conflict right but in supermarket woman it's just that he's just like no let's just have him fully trust in her capabilities and let her steer the ship and what she does and it's so great to see he's a smart businessman at the end of the day (laughs) letting other people do his work (laughs) that's actually how business works Are we talking about capitalism? Yes, that's the thematic territory I want to go into. But this is actually maybe the most time I've ever spent talking about thematic things in a film, I feel. Thanks, Itami, for getting us to to think about that. (laughs) Yay, theme! I was specifically going to talk about this very central dichotomy they have of the artisan versus the assembly line, which I found really interesting. It doesn't really come up with a proper conclusion to the question it poses i feel but i don't think there is i think it's yeah i don't think there is debate but it's such an interesting thing to be in because i feel now we talk about artisanism as a cool thing because we live in a world of factory made objects right. and products and to have this film basically say there is no more time for artisanism for artisans because the assembly line is what the people need. It's just such a strange stance that is weird to just hear. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. I would say that, yes, it has no place in the supermarket, but I think there is a still mention of other places where artisanism is valued. Like, hmm. it is mostly comes up when she talks to the fishmonger who... Prior to working at Honest Mart, had his own fish shop that got sold, I think. And then Goro found him. And at the end of the movie, um, the fishmonger decides to go set up his own sashimi place or sushi Mm -hmm. place. Not before training everyone else on how to cut sashimi. I do think that Itami is not disregarding artisans. He's just saying that... In the world of the consumerist supermarket, there is no time <laughs> for people to show off their their talent. <laughs> In a way, it ties back to the conversation that Goro and Hanako have as they're looking out over the city. People want to live as well as they can on the little that they earn. So he's tying that directly into the idea that the artisan's price point and time consumption doesn't match with the 
livability in the wages of the consumer. Same goes with like the, how she says the fanciest cuts of meat or the fanciest fish. Yeah, like, don't get shouldn't bought. be shouldn't be yeah shouldn't be sold at the supermarket because that's like not where people go to buy the fanciest cuts of meat. Now, if the market didn't exist and everything was artisans, then art could be affordable and livable. So uh, <laughs> no, everything well, I, would be expensive. <laughs> <laughs> that that's I how it know, is. Like Juzo. I mean. Factories make things cheap, but also when you make things cheap, then also everyone gets paid less. That's capitalism, right? The argument that Atami is making is that artisans are overcharging and being wasteful of consumers. But the counter would be that mass production and corporations are undercutting artists. And Atami isn't necessarily saying the latter, but he is suggesting that there's a separate space where yeah. artisans can thrive. I think there's an interesting link here between this and Tampopo because we talked about how Tampopo was about basic ramen almost. Right. And yeah. here we have essentially essentials. He's talking about the supermarket being there for essentials. And I think just based on these two films, Itami definitely falls on the side of I guess what you would say is the common man. And I think he is a little bit turning his nose up against fine goods and like fine, like the best stuff. And I think you get a lot of that when you think about Japanese culture and artisanism in Japan and you look at apprenticeships in Japan, you, they have a lot of, if you look at any video from Great Big Story on, <laughs> on Japan, it's always about the master craftsman finds one apprentice. He'll teach this one guy. And then this one guy will be yeah. holding this thing until he finds his next apprentice. And so I think Itami kind of doesn't like that kind of preciousness to... Yeah, the uppiness of it. Yeah, the uppiness and the preciousness of the craft. I think he kind of also is trying to say that the craft needs to be spread out, needs to be taught. So you kind of have that conclusion in supermarket woman where the sashimi chef is teaching other people his craft yes they're not maybe cutting the most impressive cuts of fish but he's teaching the knife skills for sashimi so it's an interesting stance that he is taking because i think even now in contemporary now we still valorize the expert a lot yes, and do. there's something interesting about a film that doesn't really celebrate the expert it, is celebrating a common man, common woman. It's interesting because I feel like you don't see that much cinema like this. No, you don't. Mm. Like even Tampopo. Tampopo is about Tampopo. Like it's difficult for a film to express the idea of the everybody. Mm. But that's why Itami's so good at. He's so good at groups of people. Like we yes. talked about this with the cashiers, the housewives. These are all groups of people. The character is the community. Yes. And so much of that is reflected Sorry, we're, we're, we're going to go a little away from the theme here. Yes, in that's the a blocking, good segue. <laughs> in the blocking of this movie, in the way that he used crowds and extras, which is an insane amount of extras a in A lot movie. of extras. And they're just like sardines coming through the <laughs> store. It's so beautiful and pleasing so to the eye. Good. Just watching 
I could name so many scenes. The most effective scene of this is the scene where they accidentally price down the eggs um, <laughs> on their discounts. And <laughs> the eggs should have been 88 yen, but they were 28 yen. And then you see like, like hundreds of people running into the store, grabbing egg after egg. And I think it is sort of supposed to be a loss for the team um, in the in the context of the plot of the movie. So you have this sort of really emotional score as they as they just hand out um carton after carton of eggs and being like one per person, one per person. And I think just how Itami always wants to fill a frame with as much people as possible just to show like scale even in an in an exaggerated way it is so effective in driving a point home and i think just using crowds all doing the same thing really like cements an idea or an image in your head what else did you guys think about the crowd usage in this movie I have a few things to to launch off from when we're talking about what I'm calling the egg catastrophe. Um, Yeah. Because I think the egg catastrophe is such an interesting scene within the context of the film because watching Supermarket Woman, I was thinking a lot more about cinematography compared to Tampopo. And I was noticing a lot of scenes that were essentially just single shot scenes, right? Long takes of blocking movement. And he does a really good job with moving people around. Uh, there's a great example of this when they're interrogating the butcher uh, near the end when they find out he's been uh, stealing meat. The great thing about that scene is the use of, of the movement towards and away from the camera. So it's a mm. wide shot, but then it goes from like wide shot of the butcher becomes a close out of the butcher and there's movement laterally as well as axially yeah, in the depth. And he does that very well with groups as well. The ballroom scene does this as well. Yeah. But the really interesting thing about it catastrophe is that it uses a lot more cuts. Mm-hmm. And he does this with the more manic scene. So you have this scene, you have shopping cart scene also does this, as well as the chase sequence. So he ramps up the cutting patterns when the scenes get more crazy. Mm. And I think that's such a good way of varying the the varying the rhythm of the film yeah mm. and i really love that watching supermarket woman and also big difference in a catastrophe is actually the use of a lot more telephoto close-up lenses on the random housewives that are coming in to buy <laughs> the eggs and that's a little strange because this film uses so many more widish lenses yeah and then to suddenly give us close-ups of random people in a sense is quite jarring and it really kind of seals the deal that this is a big deal and big like this is a big departure and a big catastrophe (laughs) and also that scene has great sound design with the random comments that come in from all the off-screen people commenting Mm. about the eggs they can hear from eli listening more to the films (laughs) (laughs) thank you skip let's say (laughs) we love you skip (laughs) a lot of great off-screen sound like the that was the comments like this is not your first card in or uh, people complaining about supermarkets being the worst blah 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 and really creating not just visual chaos but also sonic chaos Mm. yes Mm. it's interesting that you guys are both referring to this as a loss though i mean this is sort of getting back to theme a little bit but 
it's maybe a loss on the profit side, but there is a definite pride and triumph in the way that the mm-hmm. team comes together and handles the egg catastrophe. Definitely. I definitely I think Hanako takes such pride in how she solves the problem, right? Obviously there's the tension with the corrupt manager who's just like Fuck, fuck everyone. <laughs> right. We're just going to say the sale is canceled. But then she's like, no, people trust our flyers. We must yeah. make do with what we have. We have to solve the problem in the most customer-friendly way. And I think the scene does such a good job of being both a rhythm change in the film and being a sort of mini set piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also being a kind of exclamation mark on the principle of how Hanako views the supermarket. Thinking about blocking in this scene and the use of crowds, Itami's also very purposeful about how he distinguishes people from the crowd through the telephoto lenses, as Ben is mentioning. And also, the supermarket team is often placed at a different height level Mm. than the standing crowd of shoppers. They're either above it, standing on carts to announce to the crowd and hand out egg cartons, or they're below it as the eggs are running out and they're transitioning into giving out flyers to promise a carton of eggs within one week. So Atami uses height very well to separate individuals from the crowd. Just randomly also I'm thinking now about how there is one shot when Hanako pops into frame to talk to Goro from the bottom of the frame coming up. That's just such a rare way to cut into a frame on action, someone popping in from the bottom. It just It's such a clever little thing to throw in there. Right. Definitely, I think watching this one, like, I really find so much joy in... What's the name of DP? Like, <laughs> I find so much joy in how this film looks and the the way that it... Yonezo Maeda is the cinematographer. Yonezo Maeda, yeah. who does such a great job, Itami, of creating such interesting compositions using blocking to really energize the scenes. And camera movement as well. There, uh, yeah. There's so much... It is such a propulsive movie in the way that like when the characters are running like the camera is usually in front of them tracking backwards the Wes Anderson steal his pants from this film (laughs) (laughs) because there were those 90 degree pants towards the aisles and I was like did you watch this Wes? (laughs) (laughs) a little bit yeah I just stop (laughs) lifting um I just think it's it's such a fun playground to use. Just thinking about like I guess my local super, supermarket and and like pushing a pushing a cart and how mm. how, how how that sort of mirrors a dolly. Um, <laughs> that's oh. also I took inspiration for that for my for my senior thesis film. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but I I just love how propulsive this movie feel, feels and i think that is also attributed to the heavier use of score this time around in a lot of itami's films he he loves using music and i think the just the the way that the i think it's a hand drum that's used in this that heavily where like when things are in panic mode or when they're moving a lot or they're just trying to get the store ready it really just adds to it feels like a race it feels like a sports movie like it it feels um like things need to be done and and we need to save the day and and your your investment into the characters and and their drive is so important and itami using 
sound and visuals to get you into that mindset um, is really effective. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. Yeah. When is Supermarket Women coming to the MCU? That's my question. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm realizing is it's one of those rare movies where, I mean, just like Tampopo, where it feels like so many choices are so well made and so specific. I think a lot about the color, the fact that Honest Martin is pink and mm. the baskets are red. The uniforms of a lot of the staff are also red. And then you have the white, which also differentiates the different groups. Mm. And there's so many specific choices that it makes it feel like such a great movie to really dig into in terms of thinking about cinema as a more as a more as an autorist medium right Mm -hmm. like i said before in the podcast about how film can be the opposite and now this is a film that kind of affirms the idea of the auteur because of how specific the choices can be and how right not lazy it feels because so many films are lazy and i really love that about this i was thinking when we were talking about itami's love for the everyday and common and his elevation of the mundane about his genre or mode of filmmaking, it is popular in the sense that it is understandable and accessible. And I can't think of anyone who wouldn't really enjoy these two movies. That feels fitting with the themes of both movies. But as Ben is noting, there's such a high level of craft and care. Mm -hmm. And also what Wilson told us about last week with the ways in which Itami assembles his team and cares about his team members. It feels like a perfect blend of the goodness of what cinema can be and Mm -hmm. how it can reach people while Mm -hmm. still being a highly careful and craft forward art form. I think we look back into the kind of conversation we had about artisanism and assembly line making. Mm. It kind of makes sense because essentially what he's saying in both films is that there is craft to the everyday Mm. that is at the same level as what the artisans are doing. He is finding craft in the running of a supermarket that provides the essentials. Yes. And he is saying that this is the same level as the craft of a expert sashimi slicer or a expert butcher. Like he's elevating the mundane, like you said, Eli, to the same level as those artisans. And maybe that makes sense and kind of gives you more clarity into Itami's stance on artisanism and the everyday. Well, the customer is always right, and so should the listener be. Fuck. (laughs) 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 Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Cut. Please rate and review because that helps us keep making the show. Be sure to subscribe to us where you listen to podcasts so you'll know when our next episode drops. You can also give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram at Deep Cup Pod. That is where we'll be announcing our next director that we're going to cover. Woo! Woo! Join us to talk about movies on our Discord server, to which you'll find a link in the description. Thank you to Justina Yam for our beautiful artwork. I'm Wilson. I'm Ben. I'm Eli. Take care, and we're looking forward to talking about more movies with you next time.